need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Hello, my name's Dave and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together Today's episode of Getting Better Acquainted is a Getting Better Acquainted Extra, where I play for you three true stories that I told recently at Spark London events in Hackney and Brixton. Spark London is a true storytelling night that tells stories all across London, and I host an open mic at the Hackney Attic on the second Monday of every month and my friend Charlie hosts an open mic upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton on the third Monday of every month and we also have other events scattered throughout the month so check out stories.co.uk for more details about Spark events and also check out the Spark London podcast, which is a really great podcast with stories from all kinds of people that have been told on the Spark London stage over the last 10 years. I'm currently building up my conversation bank and I hope that next week we'll go back to the normal format of Getting Better Acquainted, which is a conversation between me and someone that I know about their life and their interests. Today's episode touches on some elements of childhood trauma and features frank discussion of sex, sexuality and substance use. So when I was a child, adults were these strange creatures. I mean, they weren't that strange. Like I met adults every day and they were perfectly normal. Um, But I didn't think of the adults I met as adults. Uh, I I just thought of them as other human beings I was interacting with. They might have happened to be my parent or a teacher or somebody else's parent. But, you know, they weren't adults. I didn't think of them as adults. When I thought the times I thought of adults as adults was when they had parties. When they had parties and they all drunk alcohol and got really mellow and chill and said loads of things that they wouldn't normally say in front of me that's when adults became adults to me. Like, and I used to love that at parties, at family parties or whatever, sort of being quiet in the corner, absorbing the adults. For me, adulthood was about hedonism. It was about having fun. It was about kind of letting your hair down. And that's what I was looking forward to in terms of adults. Uh, Unfortunately, obviously, we're all adults here. We know that's not what being an adult necessarily is. But then, you know, that's what adults were. And, you know, I first got a touch of that, that sense of, of what those adults were getting from that party uh, when I was nine years old. And uh, my, my niece, who is, for complicated family reasons, older than me, uh, she uh, was 12 and I was nine years old. And she and her friend, who was also 12, uh, decided to get me drunk so that they could crimp my hair. Uh, my hair was not as long as this, uh, but it was still long enough at that moment in my life. Uh, for them to crimp it a little bit Uh, and so they made me a drink of all of the alcoholic drinks in the house uh, and then they kind of topped it up with lager Uh, and I had a great time I had a great time like these older girls 
and me were like touching my hair. I was drunk. It was great. I went all around the party, seeing all the adults doing crazy things. They all kind of laughed at me because I was a drunk nine-year-old. Uh, and, you know, I saw lots of things I shouldn't have seen. It was great. Uh, then the next day I woke up and it was not so great. Like I had my first hangover. I didn't even have another hangover till I was like 20. But like then at nine, I had like my first hangover. And that first hangover was made better slash worse by my father who had clocked on to the fact that I'd got drunk the night before, coming into the room saying, right, let's go for a walk. And uh, got me out, out of bed and got me onto the, the common near uh, the house that that party took place in uh, and got me walking in the sunshine. It was horrific. But then it wasn't, you know, then it was good. Because, you know, my dad was what I think adulthood is really about, which is, you know, reasonable, responsible person trying to help out then. I mean, obviously, he did let me get drunk. I'm not saying he was completely responsible. But he was teaching me, you know, to, to like, deal with hangovers at nine. Great. Very responsible. But he was being, you know, compassionate, responsible, looking out for me, giving me a positive experience of the world. Uh, that's what some adults can do. Uh, not all of them, because I also have a mother. Um, but yes, um, so yeah, like so that was the first touch of that hedonistic adulthood stuff. Uh, the next uh, touch of adulthood came when I was 11, uh, where my niece, uh, see, a recurring character in this story, uh, got me stoned for the first time. And that was wicked. Like, I, 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 well, the thing I liked about that the best was like they had this like big long like didgeridoo-like thing with a, with a joint in it. And like they got me to suck in on it and they were like so impressed with me. Like I inhaled it. They were like, inhaled first time. First time! Because what I didn't understand then is that they were also children, but they were being impressed with me being more adult than I had thought that they thought I was. But they weren't actual adults, so they were just impressed with very mild things like being able to inhale smoke, which is a very basic skill. Very basic skill. Uh, a skill that I'm very good at, even to this day. Um, but yeah, so like that's what adulthood like was to me. But it it isn't what adulthood is like, like I've said. And what adulthood, I think, is really about is what happened to me somewhere in between when I was nine and when I was 11, when my mum and my stepdad were having really horrible adult rows in the room next door to me about really horrible adult things that because the walls were very thin, me and my little sister could hear absolutely every word crystal clear of what they were saying. Um, I won't go into the details of what they were saying, but it's, you know, the kind of stuff that gives you complexes for the rest of your life and makes you be this kind of person who talks on stage about themselves um but the, what I think was when I started to be an adult was when I would go through to my sister's room where she was crying and I would play the role of the person holding her, comforting her and not crying myself, even though I wanted to, very adult-like. I uh, was instead being the responsible person. And, the, 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 and where I'm going to end this story is at another party when I'm much older, when I had gone uh, to visit my sister in Bristol and I found myself in a room at a party where I was a little bit drunk and high, uh, in suddenly in a situation where somebody put a two-day-old baby into my arms to hold, and I was next to my eight-year-old niece who was holding the twin sister of this two-day-old baby. So we were both holding two-day-old babies, and then all of the other adults left the room. And I was in this situation where I was holding a baby that I was scared to hold, 
but next to an eight-year-old who I needed to prove, like, demonstrate responsible holding ability because she was also holding a child and getting distracted and I had to focus her on her job of what she needed to do, which was to look after that child. It didn't last very long. Very soon, proper adults, not like me, came into the room and, and held those babies and looked after those babies and they were fine. But that is what adulthood is like for me. It's about putting yourself, like taking yourself out of the situation and being responsible. It's not about hedonism at all. And I think about that more and more these days because my dad, who took me out when I was nine, um, he is now uh, 93 and he is kind of losing his functions and I am having to play the role every day of the responsible adult for this man who used to be my responsible adult and so adulthood turns around and around and around and that's the end of my story of course we all know that being an adult is really about like paying bills and shit that seems to be what it really is about um i'm not very good at that right Anyway, enough about me. Let's have our, our first uh, proper storyteller who isn't me. Uh, this is my favourite moment because I get to stop speaking, um, which is not what I thought I would say when I was a young person, but these days I quite like stopping speaking for a bit. Anyway. I got down onto one knee and immediately realised that I had put my knee in a puddle uh, and that my trousers started to get wet. Uh, and I looked up at uh, the woman uh, that I would have called my girlfriend at that point in time uh, and I uh, proposed to her. I can't quite remember what the proposal was. Uh, we were both on ecstasy so it's hard to hard to fully remember the wording because of that. Um, we'd gone for a kind of hike in the Lake, Lake District on ecstasy like everyone does when they're getting uh, they're going to propose to someone, right? That's the, the normal way of doing it. Um, and uh, so yeah, and I, I, I kind of promised, I guess, to be with her for the rest of my life or at least I suspect I promised to try to be with her for the rest of my life because I'm not actually that into promising things uh, as a rule because I feel like promises I don't know uh, often we can't fulfill them and then we just feel guilty because we didn't manage to fulfill them I think the intention to try is what I uh, value more than the actual ability to succeed I guess um, now the reason that I was proposing to her uh, apart from the fact that I loved her and wanted to be with her, uh, was uh, that we were having a really, really shit time in our lives. Like, we got together uh, in the first year of university, uh, and we'd finished university, uh, like, uh, got our degrees. Uh, we didn't go to our uh, diploma, whatever, ceremony. We didn't. We were graduates. Um, but that's a real thing weirdly um but we but yes well, we did get our uh, university qualifications we stayed on in the town lancaster where we'd been uh, going to uh y- university now we stayed on in that town and uh you know we'd both done arts degrees we both like want to write and do stuff like that um but we'd stayed on in that town and kind of gone to the job center got incredibly demoralized incredibly quickly both uh, were lucky i guess in a way to get uh rubbish kind of low-paid jobs which we had to commute out of lancaster to 
to do. Uh, we were living with two people who were still students. So that was a horrible dynamic in the house of us being working people, not wanting to uh, like be up all night and th- them wanting to be students still and not be brought down by these working people. So it was kind of an unpleasant environment in our house with our good friends who we were quickly becoming kind of complicated with. And so going out to the Lake District uh, to, to have this holiday was a kind of a, a, an oasis of kind of wonder and happiness in our unpleasant lives. And I guess that's why we'd been sort of talking about uh, getting engaged potentially. And it was a weird thing because we bought the ring. We went out and we bought the rings together. Um, but I still wasn't sure she was going to say yes. Like, it's weird because I should have obviously, as soon as we bought the ring, been like, right, she's going to say yes because wouldn't, we wouldn't lay down loads of money if she was going to say no. But she really managed to con- keep me on my toes and make me absolutely paranoid. It's not hard to make me paranoid, guys. Very easy. Um, and so, yeah. And so when I was kind of like knelt in that puddle, I was incredibly surprised uh, in many ways that she said yes. And then we were like, right, let's not bother going for this hike. Let's go back to the uh, hotel and listen to music all night because we were on ecstasy. So, what, you know, uh, that's what you do. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's when we got engaged. Now, the thing is, like, both of us feel complicated about the institution of marriage to begin with. Like there's certain kind of patriarchal issues that we have with it. Uh, there's certain kinds of issues we have, both of us coming from divorced families uh, and knowing many people who don't stay together. Uh, there's lots of kind of complexities around getting married uh, that, that we kind of didn't really think about when we just wanted a nice moment. Uh, but we then very quickly started to think about, in fact, we started to think about it really quickly because we rang up all of our friends and family to tell them that we were getting engaged and uh, they were all like like most of our family were like what why uh, and they were very kind of like disappointed almost it felt like like why are they uh, trying like, they're only young they've only just finished university why don't they have their lives first etc 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 so we started to think well you know okay like who are we doing this for if we're doing it for these guys who we're ringing uh, they're not into it so are we doing it for ourselves are we doing it for something that we want and so over the years as they went on we sort of talked a lot about getting married and uh, Jen my uh, girlfriend now partner because after a certain amount of years it just feels weird to call her my girlfriend um so me and Jen talked about it a lot and uh you know at the end of the day she does not like the idea of getting married because everyone's going to be looking at her which she doesn't like she's an introvert like a proper introvert I'm like an ambivert I like being on stage and I also like being in a little ball in my room Uh, but she uh, likes to uh, like not be the center of attention and that's kind of what weddings are designed to be for the bride and so it's not a very good uh, fit already for her Um, and so we sort of talked about it a lot and we talked about how we might do it and there was lots of discussion and the final straw for me was kind of when uh, she was suggesting we had a humanist wedding and uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily against that but it was quite a lot of money and it wasn't legally binding so I felt like I'm not going to spend a lot of money and not get some of the perks from this marriage thing that you know the, the, the Tories like to like uh, give you financial benefits for um, and so uh, like at that point I was like Do you know what like, let's not get married. Let's just not, let's get unengaged uh, because you're not going to be happy with this. I don't really care. Like, we, we love each other anyway. We don't need uh, a piece of paper to, to say that. And so we kind of got unengaged. And then, uh, like, after a while of being unengaged, we just got sick of all of our friends and family saying, now, saying, when are you going to get married? Um, and so at that point, we decided, well, what we'll do to make them happy uh, is we'll have uh, a not getting married party because what, what is a wedding apart? 
apart from a party, really. It's just getting together with the people you love. And if you throw a not getting married party, the idea was we don't have to invite everyone to that. Like, so we can avoid, you know, uh, her dad and my mum ever meeting each other, which they haven't yet. And thank God. Um, and so, you know, we wouldn't have to have all of those kind of, uh, wedding kind of awkwardnesses of different groups coming together who hate each other and having to pretend they like each other um so we were like yeah let's have that party and we invited everybody we knew and then as it got closer and closer to the date jen was getting more and more anxious about that uh, and then like it became clear that still we hadn't solved the problem because she was still going to be the center of attention at a party which she doesn't really like parties and uh, we did actually have to invite all the people that we didn't want to meet each other because when you know you, you think you're not going to and then they sort of like look all, like you know you have to you don't want to but you have to because you do care like you know you you can't just be brutal and ruthless about these things because that's not what weddings and love and all these things are about um so then we had to have this really awkward moment where we uninvited everybody and cancelled the party um so at this point you know all of the people who know us have got no uh belief that we're ever going to get married Uh, and then you know after 11 years of being in in a relationship in a monogamous relationship we decided to open up our relationship and sort of uh be in a situation where we can sleep with other people and then we found ourselves in another kind of weird echo of that time when we had to phone everyone to tell them that we were getting married we were then phoning all of our friends and family and explaining to them that we were in an open relationship because you know it would be a bit awkward if they didn't know and they saw us with somebody else and then they thought we were having an affair and all of that stuff so yeah get it all out in the open and again you know our friends and families didn't disappoint in that they didn't give a shit uh they didn't care uh, none of them particularly cared i mean there were a few people who did care actually to be actually fully clear some people did kind of uh go okay let's never speak of that again um but generally no one's no you know people still talk to us in our families that's nice um and you know it was a weird moment again to be like ringing people to tell them something about my personal relationship that was none of really their business and so uh yeah that's where we are 16 years later um we have been we've we've lasted longer than my parents marriage uh not quite as much as her uh, parents marriage or my dad's first marriage but we know we're on the way we've met we've had a longer relationship than any of the people that we know who have uh, who are married in our immediate kind of friendship group and i guess the only real promise that we made was the promise to try and stay together uh, for the rest of our lives and I still, you know, we've both still wear our engagement rings. And in fact, my engagement ring looks like a wedding ring. So everyone just assumes that it's a wedding ring. And so I like to have this promise on my finger because it means that I always have Jen with me when she's not here. I always have this memory of Jen uh, on my finger. But it's also quite an inconvenient promise because I'm in an open relationship, but everyone assumes I'm married. Uh, and that's not quite what I would like people to think uh, when I'm in a bar. Uh, or similar Uh, so yes Uh, so it's a complicated thing marriage complicated thing promises Uh, but I wear a promise on my finger and hopefully that's the only promise I'm ever going to make So when I was 11 years old, I invented something amazing. I discovered that my body could do something that nobody else's bodies could do. And I couldn't wait until the next day so that I could tell everybody about this invention.
Uh, and I got into school and I gathered together a, a group of uh, boys around my age. Um, some of them were my friends, some of them were people I wanted to impress. And uh, I, I described this thing that I'd invented, which was rubbing uh, my body, uh, myself, on my penis uh, until uh, I, uh, I achieved this amazing thing that I could, couldn't even describe what it was. And uh, I called it, I said, simulated sex and uh, they were like that's wanking everybody knows about that and I discovered in that moment that I had not been given as much information as I thought I had uh, by being uh, brought up in a really kind of hippie, uh, too much information, no absolutely no boundaries uh, kind of family. Like, my mum had told me stuff about sex. She had said uh, things like uh, the most sexual experience of her life uh, was giving birth uh, to her second child. Which was really crazy for me, guys, because I, I was her second child. So that's a thing that I've achieved by accident. Um, and, and she also, you know, she, she, she um, a little bit later, I think I was after I was 11, uh, but when she used to do this, but she used to really kind of always try and really reassure me all the time when I was like about 13 to, to 17. She would go like, oh, some of the best sex I've ever had, I've not, uh, I've not orgasmed, so it's absolutely fine. Like, you don't have, like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm pro that. Like, I, I agree that some good sex doesn't involve orgasms. That's absolutely true. However, I'm not sure that the information to tell a growing up adolescent boy is don't worry about the other person coming you know like I, 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 I do see her wider argument but it was not a nuanced situation she was dealing with it was an adolescent boy um, but luckily you know I didn't listen to my mother on that one um, but yes like and, and, and I sort of like I thought I, I was totally schooled in sex education because like they had talked about it all the time I've been given like this like, my dad uh, was part of a feminist book club that he like bought these books from uh, and you know he, he'd given me the the kind of uh, the hippie book that had like a, a white boy and a, an East Asian uh, girl uh, in in the pictures uh, which is kind of like as close as you can get to diversity while still kind of enforcing white supremacy I think like like so I'd, I'd seen that a couple of different colored people could have sex um, and and you know I I'd I'd, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd thought that I had all the information. And literally, I had been told about masturbation. I just had not joined the dots in that way that, you know, it's very important to join the dots uh, when you're dealing with sex and sexuality. Um, but that said, one thing I do think that my mum taught me that was very useful and very good, and she's not been very good for me in my life, she's been very damaging in, uh, to me in my life, so it's really great that there are a few things that I can say, yes, here's a great thing that my mum taught me, and it was about sex. Um, when I was kind of... I don't know. Uh, I must have been over three, so let's say four, five, five years old. Um, I was playing um, with um, a friend and his little sister, who I guess would have been about three. And it's a cliche, and I don't know why why we have these cliches in our lives, but it's true. We were playing doctors and nurses uh, and examining each other. Uh, and, you know, we were examining each other. You know, I don't think I need to give you any more uh, details for you to sketch this picture about children. Um, but we were examining each other. And, like, one, like we went too far. Like, 
the uh, girl was like suddenly it wasn't cool like everything had been cool and consensual I guess I wouldn't have had that word um, but we'd crossed over a boundary and she was unhappy and she was crying so I went to find my mum uh, to ask her what to do and my mum she came in and she sat with us and she got down to our level and she she explained about the importance of consent and what that means and um, I'm not saying that you know uh, toxic masculinity within culture didn't erode that knowledge that I learned in that moment and I have to relearn it as an adult better uh, than I learned it then but what I am saying is that what she managed to do is she managed to teach us why consent was important and I think that's an important lesson for all of us to learn Uh, but I also think that the interesting thing was it worked because she didn't shame us she didn't make us feel like we'd done something wrong. She made us feel like we'd made a mistake that we didn't understand. And she communicated that without giving me an overwhelming sense of sexual shame. That came later when I got to school. So don't worry. I am completely fucked up about sex, guys. Don't worry. I'm not some kind of progressive prophet uh, who knows about, like, who was taught about consent when they were five. Um, but yeah, it was a good lesson, and I'm glad I learned it. The events and experiences that I touched on in that last story are also events that I talk about in a very different way in my solo show, What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity, which you can listen to as a podcast. It's available on the Stand Up Tragedy podcast feed. It's the last podcast that went out on that feed. And you can hear the show and you can also read more about the show over on its website, mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And I also reflected on that show in BBC Radio 4's Forethought episode, Liberating Men. And you can find that via Google. As well as making Getting Better Acquainted, I also co-produce and, I guess, star in the magical realist audio drama podcast, The Family Tree. Season one of The Family Tree is available to listen to on the website, thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. But even more exciting than season one is the soon-to-be-released season two. So in the middle of July, there's going to be a mini episode which will explain more about what season two is going to be. And then from August, season two of The Family Tree begins. We're making it and it's a really exciting show and the audience is growing and feedback is is so great. And it's really lovely to hear from people who've got stuff out of the show. But in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be, we need your help. So if you can afford to, then please do consider signing up to our Patreon appeal. In return for your money to fund the show, we give you some really cool perks that are related to the show, some memorabilia, some special features and behind the scenes info and with your money we can pay our performers better we can promote the show better we can develop the show better and if we get enough money we can maybe even pay ourselves which is something that i very much struggle to do uh, so it would be really great to be able to do that and by doing that you are also helping getting better acquainted to happen so if you're a fan of getting better acquainted and you listen to it every week then please do 
support that Patreon because by doing that, you're supporting me and supporting me supports this show. You can find The Family Tree, just like you can find Getting Better Acquainted, anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, where the show is at GBA Podcast. You can donate to Getting Better Acquainted specifically. If you don't want to donate to the Patreon, you can donate to me directly for Getting Better Acquainted. You can find a link to do that over on the Getting Better Acquainted SoundCloud page. Please tell people about Getting Better Acquainted. Please tell people about the family tree. And also, if there's anybody that you know who would be interested in my freelance services, and I I produce podcasts for people as well as hosting nights and telling stories and performing my solo show and all sorts of different kinds of things that I can do, go over to Dave Pickering Storyteller to find out more about what I can do. And please tell people to come my way you can email me at goosefat101 at gmail.com and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted